0: May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. In 2008, close to the end of our six-week trip through the UK, Turkey, and Greece, Catherine, Calloway, and I arrived in Athens, planning to spend a couple of days exploring all that the city had to offer. It would be just three months after our visit there, that the city of Athens would explode into violent riots, triggered by the death of a 15-year-old Greek student at the hands of two police officers. And we were not surprised to hear of those riots, not at all. We'd experienced Athens as a city of deep tension, simmering just at the edge of violence. Similarly, it came as no surprise when we learned in 2010 and then 11 and then 12 The demonstrations and strikes opposing the government's austerity measures had again plunged the city into violence. There was graffiti everywhere, neglected, crumbling infrastructure, the air thick with smog. The staff at our hotel advised us not to go out at all after dark. It's not what we'd imagined when we'd planned our visit to that city, But in some such circumstances, you press on, you make the best of it, right? After all, we were in one of the historically, archaeologically most important cities in the world, the home of the famed Acropolis. Having dutifully remained in our hotel the evening of our arrival, we set out the next morning for the Acropolis, only to discover that every other visitor to the city apparently had the same plan. We climbed the steep hill and took our place in this extraordinarily long, winding queue. After about 10 minutes of shuffling our way slowly up toward the ticket gate, Catherine threw in the towel, reasoning that after all the things we'd seen during the course of our travels, these ruins were not worth enduring those crowds, no matter the significance of this particular pile of stones. Calloway, on the other hand, seemed to have a sense of what you might call tourist duty, (laughs) which dovetailed perfectly with this streak of stubbornness that suddenly emerged from somewhere within me. And so, while Catherine sat comfortably at the base of the Acropolis Hill, Calloway and I continued to shuffle our way forward in that line When we finally got through the ticket gate, we discovered that the crowd up top was even thicker. And so for about 15 or 20 minutes, we shuffled some more. Shoulder to shoulder with all of the other dutiful and stubborn tourists. We dully looked at the ruins. At one point, I glanced over the edge across the cityscape and was aware of this thick yellow haze of smog just hanging Well, the two of us rather sheepishly admitted that Calloway's sense of duty and my stubbornness had rewarded us with nothing more than some familial tension. It remains one of the more memorable days of our whole trip, (laughs) but for all the wrong reasons. From the Acropolis, we made our way to the Oropagus, to Mars Hill, which was a considerably more pleasant sight. The crowds were thin, the air cooler, the sight itself quite lovely. I paused to look at a plaque and, to my surprise, discovered that it was an engraving of the text of Paul's sermon from Acts 17, the text we heard read aloud as our first lesson. For a few moments, all of those less-than-edifying experiences of Athens and the Acropolis faded. I found myself filled with a sense of wonder that I was walking some of the same pathways that Paul himself had walked, that I was in the very place where he had engaged the thinkers and the scholars of the Athens of his own day. Now, according to the book of Acts, like us... Paul hadn't been all that keen on what he'd experienced in Athens, though in his case it was because he was, quote, deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so, in both the synagogue, where the Jewish community gathered, and in the marketplace, the public gathering place, Paul readily voiced his distress and his alternate theology such that after a while the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers took note and they invited him to come to the Eropagus, to Mars Hill to make a presentation, a kind of a public lecture hall, if you will. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, they ask him. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. At this point in his narrative, Luke parenthetically notes that all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Isn't that a fascinating little observation? They'd spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new, and so the narrative continues. Paul stood in front of the Eropagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, And as his speech unfolds, he essentially tells them that he knows precisely who this unknown God is and that he can put them on a path towards knowing that God. Appealing first to what's called natural theology, Paul points to the splendor of the created world and then to the unity of all of humankind. As creator of this one unified humanity, Paul reasons God has ordered things so that all would search for God, grope for God, and even find God. That's the lines. All would search, grope, even find. It's hardwired in us. Indeed, Paul tells them, God is not far from each one of us even presumably to those who are putting up these idols for worship. God is never far. He then does something quite remarkable. He turns to their own philosophical tradition as a way of more deeply engaging them in this conversation. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, it's a line that's gotten drawn into Christian prayer you know, to the God in whom we live and move and have our being, but it's a quotation most likely from the Greek philosopher Epimedes from the 6th century before Christ. And he follows that by another quote, for we too are his offspring, from the Stoic philosopher Aratas. In other words, Paul is quite prepared to engage them from their cultural and philosophical beginning point, and to recognize and even draw on the insights that have been generated from that culture. He's been doing this in the marketplace, and now he's doing it at this place where philosophy is discussed on Mars Hill. He's in the public square, and rather than simply condemn or judge what he sees going on there, he's prepared to take it quite seriously, in spite of his own anxieties with some of it. He's convinced, after all, that because there is but one creator, and but one human family, we are all hardwired to search and grope for that one God. And Paul, he's quite ready to say that God has never been far removed, never been far removed from any of those human searchings, that those who have sought for the truth have at least been able to find some part of it. It's, it's a remarkable kind of an engagement, a remarkably open and generous vision. I wonder how Paul might have engaged the seething 21st century version of Athens that we experienced What gropings he might have recognized at work in that city's simmering discontent. Or how he might engage our own city, our own North American cultural context, our own public square. What insights or truths would Paul see there? Not only in our intellectual world, but also in the music or the movies or the digital technology of this age. You'd have to imagine that Paul would quickly discover that our world's public square has gone online and that his would be one of countless voices competing for our attention. In the midst of all that, what do you suppose he might recognize our peculiar idolatries to be? He might find himself able to tell us a challenging and unsettling truth about what he sees in our fixations and idolatries. You see, Paul in Athens won't stop at simply finding common ground with his audience there. He needs to engage them more deeply in a manner which Rodney Clapp characterizes as border crossings, as Christian trespasses, on popular culture and public affairs. He needs to try to speak this other word into it. Not that trespassing in this way or crossing those borders is any less respectful of his audience. In fact, it's probably more respectful because he's prepared to risk telling them hard truth. Paul just needs to keep speaking. He needs to keep saying some things which he believes will quite radically reshape or remake their culture, their city, their lives. Formed as he is in the wisdom of the Torah, Paul first makes some critical remarks about all of those images and idols he's seen around the city. Since we are God's offspring, he says, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold, silver, or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. That would have at least got something of a hearing by this open-minded audience who want to entertain new ideas. It's when he begins to speak of Christ, a man whom God has appointed and whom God has raised from the dead, that Paul finds he's losing at least a good part of that so-called open-minded audience. The idea of a resurrection is entirely bizarre to the Greek philosophical context. They had no room for the robust Jewish sense of human life as embodied life. And so they couldn't understand why somebody, once their spirit had been freed from this limited body, would want to return to it. It seemed all a little base. No, we're not going to go there. So Luke tells us that while a few Athenians did join Paul and become believers, on the whole, quote, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed while others said, we will hear you again about this. We need to think about it for a little while. And remember, Luke has already told us that this was a populace that would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. This is intriguing. This is odd. This is new. We'll hear it again. That desire for the new, of course, is perhaps one of the great idolatries of our own time. The newest, the latest, the most fashionable, the belief system, philosophy, spirituality, or maybe business strategy, investment opportunity, or even diet and fitness plan that will make me stronger, better, more prosperous, younger looking to boot. I suspect Paul would take all of those strivings and longings and gropings seriously, all those things people so quickly chase after. He would see them as speaking to the deeper hungers we, sus- we all suspect lie deep, tucked deep inside of our souls. Now there's something I can work with, Paul would say. They're always chasing the new. They're always looking for an easy answer. They're always buying those books with seven steps to something. We can talk about that. I can work with that, Paul might say to himself, and then he'd speak words that both engage the culture, but at the same time challenge and unveil it in its brokenness. So if that's what Paul might do were he, were he to appear in our midst... Maybe it's what we should do as heirs in the body of Christ. Not flee from the culture, nor uncritically be swept up in it, but engage it. Have the audacity to believe that ours can be a voice in shaping and actually remaking the culture in which we live. We can be culture makers, as Andy Crouch puts it of a sort who actually believe that the, that the way of being in the world that we have been given in and through Christ is something worth talking about, something worth bringing to bear in our world's version of the public square. It's a different vision of evangelism, of course, because it starts with that engagement, that dialogue, That taking seriously the wisdom of the culture when it's there. That being unafraid of acknowledging the goodness that's in our midst and all around us. And then the conversation begins. May we be culture makers as Paul was. Amen.